Have you ever wondered why it's difficult to give your attention, energy, and take action on what matters the most to you? Or to speak up with clarity from the best part of yourself? If that's you, then you're in the right place. The follow-through formula is dedicated to providing daily inspiration for you to follow through on the real you. Hello everyone, this is Rick Lewis with episode 57, that's 57, consecutive podcasts, days in a row, can you believe it? I'm saying it because I'm proud of it, I admit it, I'm proud that I have done 57 daily podcasts in a row and I'm excited, extra excited today because... I have a new interviewee for you, and you've heard from my friend John, who is a clinical psychologist, and I have another clinical psychologist, which seems to be a pattern with me, is I like talking with clinical psychologists, and I have friends who are clinical psychologists. And Jeff and I have been friends for a long, long time, And I have him here with me today. Welcome, Dr. Jeff Carr. Hi, Rick. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) Jeff and I talk a lot, actually. We talk regularly. But I'm going to ask Jeff some questions that I think are going to be useful to this conversation about following through. And in terms of the follow-through formula, as you all know, what I'm always talking about here is what stands in the way of us being able to act on what's most important in our lives, in our hearts, in our spirit. Things that really move us, the things that we really care about, the relationships we most want to nurture. What is it that stops us from expressing ourselves more authentically, and openly and taking action that matters most to us. And Jeff has a background in a lot of understanding about trauma and the role that early life trauma has in this respect with creating an injunction to us moving forward the way I've described. So Jeff, that's what I wanted to ask about today is if you could describe for us the role that trauma plays with closing us down to ourselves and to life and to others. How does that work and what can we do about it? Sure, Rick. Uh, I think it's actually better if I start a little bit closer uh, to the problem you're addressing, namely, why don't people kind of um, stay on track in terms of what really matters to them? And so my my short answer is, well, because uh, it feels easier, better not to. There's stuff that feels, uh, even though there's something that's really important to us, if there's something that offers us a little bit of uh, tasty treat right away, the good feeling is going to be pretty compelling for us. So we tend to go for that. And just as potently, if moving towards the thing that we really want stirs up distressing feelings for us, then we're going to tend to avoid it. Even if it's something that we're really clear, this is going to be something really valuable and important for me in my life. 
if we're if it's going to stir up upsetting feelings, we're not going to do it. And I do in terms of the patients that I see, this is just pervasive. Uh, and in my own life as well, it's the same for all of us. Uh, we all have things that matter to us. Why is that not uh, apparently a priority for us? We let other things get in the way. So again, the distressing feelings that come up when we start to move towards what we say we want is, in my view, probably the biggest obstacle. Now I'm back to answering the question. So, well, where do these distressing feelings come from? And my view is that actually they're echoes of what we felt when we were little. Uh, this is a this becomes a bit of a longer story, uh, but though we're not aware of it, uh, because most of us can't remember the first few years of our lives, there was distressing stuff that happened for most of us. And when we have distress that's more intense than we can tolerate, uh, we do things to avoid it. We, we push it down. We dissociate from it, split off from it, a whole bunch of different terms. But what that does is it basically um, pushes those uh, upsetting feelings uh, down, pushes them aside, but it's not like they've, they're, they've disappeared. They're still there. And then as we go through our lives, uh, different situations are likely to re-evoke uh, re them, trigger them is the common term. When, when they're triggered, we don't have any awareness that, what's, that the feeling that's coming up for us uh, is about something that happened a long time ago when we were little, uh, it feels very much like it's about our current lives, the situation that we're in now. So if we start to uh, take steps towards something that we want in our lives, something that's important, but those steps trigger the distressing feelings from childhood, we're going to feel like, uh-oh, uh-oh, this isn't good. And we're going to want to get away from that upsetting feeling, whether we're feeling embarrassed, uh, ashamed, uh, hurt, afraid, it doesn't matter what the upsetting feeling is, uh, we, we're not going to like it. So we're going to tend to automatically steer ourselves away from doing the thing that seems to be stirring up that feeling. And if moving towards the thing that we really want in our life is stirring up that feeling, then we've got this huge obstacle to what we say we really want. That's clear. So these distressing feelings like, can you tell me a story and not no naming names, of course. And I know you can't do that anyway, because you're bound by confidentiality with the people you see, but I'll bet you see some recurring kind of situations or early life circumstances that produce common avoidance strategies for people. Can you give me an example or even a couple examples of the kind of thing that might occur in childhood that would then result in this unconscious background distress as an adult. Sure. Uh, and I have to emphasize there's endless examples, wide range of possible ways that this ends up coming up for us in our adult lives. But I'll give you one example. So someone is, uh, what's really important to them is they are wanting to be uh, seen and recognized by others in their lives They've usually been kind of quiet, background, uh, you know, not asserting themselves, not being very visible to others, and it's sucked for them. They they don't like the sense of being that they're not important, uh, that they don't matter. So, okay, this is important. They're going to now start to take up some space and express themselves and ask people 
to listen to them. Actually, to ask. It's like, do you mind listening to me for five minutes or whatever else? Well, sounds good. Okay, let's go on Go on that. You start taking up space in your life, going after, for, after what you want, following your desires. Go for it. Great. Well, as soon as the person starts doing it, they start to come up against the reasons that they haven't done it in the past. And uh, well, why wouldn't someone do that? Who doesn't want to have, be seen by other people and be following what they want? Well, if when you were little, uh, your parents were really preoccupied with other things and you needing or wanting something from them was a real pain in the ass for them, they might consistently get annoyed and angry whenever you uh, start uh, expressing yourself or demanding something. In fact, they might have gotten really outright annoyed, uh, angry, maybe even yelled at you or hit you for expressing yourself or for needing something. So with that pattern laid down early in your life of, I better just be quiet here. The, 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 The least needy I am, the better things go for me. When that pattern gets laid down early, and again, this is often before we can remember, so the pattern's there and we just continue to live it out in our lives. When that's laid down, we actually feel some relief by keeping ourselves quiet, not demanding, not taking up a lot of space. So then when we start to do that as adults, our anxiety is going to come up. We're going to feel like, "Uh uh-oh, something bad's going to happen. And of course, it's not rational. People in our lives now may be completely willing to to hear us, value our opinions, uh, happy to support us in going after what we want, but we're going to be in our own ways. We are going to tend to feel anxious that something bad's going to happen. We're going to feel like we're bad, like we're being bad. That's the message we got from our parents when we started to be needy or take up more space or ask for things. So... As adults, we're going to feel like, uh-oh, I'm being a bad person by doing this. I'm being selfish. I shouldn't do that. So as soon as we start to go after what we want, or shortly afterwards, that those distressing feelings are going to come up for us. And in the face of feeling like I'm bad, and the scary sense of, uh-oh, something bad's going to happen, which is an echo of having been yelled at by our parents, uh, We're going to retreat from our big project of wanting to go after what we want in our lives and being ourselves and expressing ourselves. That's going to now be, uh uh-oh, we'll we'll back away from that. Maybe that's not quite so important. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. You have another example? Anything, what might happen in childhood that then shows up in adult life? Sure. Why don't we start with an example or two from the folks that you're working with about where going after, following through on what they really want, what's getting in the way for them? Um, Asking for the sale. So people who have something to offer, but when it comes to actually asking someone to pay for it, that's really hard for them. Gotcha. So actually that, I'll suggest that that echoes what I've just been talking about. So that's where they're wanting something from themselves and they're concerned about the reaction from the person even though they believe that they are offering something to the other person, okay, they're still concerned that from by asking that somehow the other person is going to be upset. Somehow they're being selfish. They're asking too much. They're expecting too much. 
So again, those are those are feelings that if you're actually offering this the person through the sale something of value to them, it doesn't make any rational sense in the in our current lives to have apprehension about that. It's like the person may say no or whatever, but to f- have anxiety about asking, that doesn't make sense, uh, at least in the current world. But it sure makes emotional sense if you start it again and realize that, huh, what could be behind that? Here I am. I'm wanting to offer this person something that's of value to them, but I'm feeling somehow bad for doing that. What is it? And with each person, it may be different. Um, so for some, it may be an apprehension that the person's going to be upset with them. How dare you ask me that <laughs> or something like that. Uh, and again, this these aren't unnecessarily rational. They may have that fear, even though they know it's not actually likely to happen. But the apprehension may be that the other person's going to be upset with them. Uh, the apprehension may be that they are uh, being, I'm going to feel like I'm a bad person. I'm being so selfish, asking for something for myself. So for each of us, uh, the, the challenge is noticing in the situation that I'm going after what I want, but I'm feeling so uncomfortable doing it. And then listening to what's going on inside. What is, what is getting in the way? What is that uh, upsetting feeling that's stopping me from doing what I want to do? Then reflecting on, well, is that rational? Is that really likely to happen? Is that really likely to be a problem? And if it's not, then, then paying attention again inside, it's like, huh, what is getting in the way? What is that feeling? What does it feel like it's about? So, you know, if I look at myself, because I have the tendencies I'm talking about and that you're addressing, on one hand, the feelings are coming up and I can say, well, what are these about? And sort of investigate. On the other hand, I can pretty quickly come to the understanding or the the insight that these aren't really relevant now. They're, it's not about now. Yeah. Should I just move forward with taking action despite the fact that I'm feeling the distress? Or is there more profit in investigating the source of the distress? My suggestion is uh, ultimately... Uh, the gold is in taking time to allow yourself to feel and experience what those feelings are. If we recognize that they're echoes for how, from what we felt when we were little, that simply we've, that we've consistently pushed aside, then it's obviously of tremendous benefit to us to finally listen to and hear. It's like, oh, I was feeling so scared. And again, you may not remember this, you know, particular episode, incidents or episodes from childhood. That's not crucial. But to just be able to listen to the to the fear that's there, or to feeling badly about oneself, and realize it's like, but I'm not doing anything bad. It's like, yeah, that's the point. You aren't doing anything that's uh, inconsiderate of other people, hostile towards other people. Yet you're still feeling bad. That warrants listening to the to the feeling that, that taking time to actually let yourself feel that, knowing that it's not about your life now. You're not doing anything wrong or hostile, uh, but that feeling's there. As you take time to listen to it, uh, what I call approaching the feeling as opposed to avoiding it, it inevitably softens. 
it becomes people are afraid <laughs> if, I, if I give it attention, it's going to get bigger. But the opposite happens, it gets smaller. Okay? And, and I'm, I'm not saying it disappears and goes away. That's not necessary. As long as we know that the feeling's not about now and uh, we can be with it and it gets softer and somewhat smaller, we're going to feel better. And that does indeed free us to then pursue the stuff that we want in our lives, because even if the feeling does come up, we're going to, that is to say, we feel scared, we feel bad about ourselves, uh, we have more capacity to navigate to deal with that feeling. So when we do decide, it's like, oh, I'm going to do this thing anyway, I know I'm feeling scared, but I'm not going to let my fear get in the way of what I really want. So then you can, you can persist with, uh, you know, much less, um, much less challenge from the fear. You know what it's about. You can be with yourself. So you can just proceed, you know, as you would with a child who's afraid of something. You want really want to be compassionate with their fear, but that doesn't mean you want to go along with it all the time. Right. I'm realizing that as you're as I asked this question about someone who wants to go after something and, and knows what they want, for instance, they want to sell something, but has difficulty doing it. There's a whole nother category of folks that I'm working with through the games for confidence work I'm doing who don't even know what they want. They actually are so disconnected from doing anything for themselves or in relationship to their own internal or intrinsic sense of motivation that when I ask them, well, what do you want or what is your, what do you feel like your purpose is here? They don't even have a, a beginning idea. <laughs> and this, this, the tendency, this uh, type of person tends to be what I see as a rescuer. They are constantly doing things for other people. And mm -hmm. not only are they constantly doing things for other people, if they were to get a moment, they've somehow embedded themselves in life circumstances where there always seems to be some emergency that's arising. Mm -hmm. And they forever have some reason to put their entire self on hold in order to put out some fire somewhere. Gotcha. So, yeah, and I, I want to emphasize that's real. Um, a, a good chunk of folks really don't have any clue in terms of what they feel inside or what they want. Uh, I remember a patient from over 30 years ago and like just working to try to find some basic sense of what does she want. And it's like, well, what's your favorite color? And it was like everything else. Like, I don't know. I, I don't have a favorite color. There's just no internal referent for what feels good for me. What do I, what do I want? What do I like? So first, in terms of uh, what's going on, uh, again, my, my belief and my experience is it's got the same underpinnings that we've, we've been talking about, that when they were young, what's going on for them was not relevant. There, it was uh, more distressing 
uh, and dangerous for them to be focused on how they feel and what they want because the the payoff was in attending to other people. What mood is dad in? You got to you got to uh, particularly uh, parents who have uh, say alcohol addictions. It's like it's unpredictable and it feels so compelling that you've got to be atten- watching out for and attending to what do these people need? What do I have to do to keep myself safe? Right. So the whole focus is on what do the parent, what do I have to do to keep dad happy, to keep dad calm down? So that becomes uh, all consuming because again, if someone's uh, an alcoholic uh, as a parent, it's unpredictable. And the, it's, uh, the parent's going to make it seem like somehow it's something that the child's done or hasn't done that's causing them to be upset. But of course, it has nothing to do with that. It's just the, the parent's random, uh, whether, whether they're drinking or not. Uh, so from the child's perspective, there's no uh, chance to rest. It's not like, okay, things are good now. It's You always have to be on attending, you know, scanning the environment and attending to, you know, where's the risk? Where's the next problem going to come from? If you're doing that, you're not attending to your internal experience. Right. So then that becomes, again, a pattern that feels rewarding because you're keeping yourself safe by scanning and paying attention to what problems need attending to in the outside world. So then as adults, you continue to do that. You're attending to other people's needs and looking for the emergencies because you know how to deal with emergencies. That's what you were trained to do. So it's all very familiar and compelling to keep on doing that because the illusion is I'm, I'm keeping myself safe. Right. And then if you, if you, you know, when we start to then with someone like that, turn them to their internal experience. First, the first challenge is it's like, what's that? Where do I look for that? But even as they begin to, you know, as we navigate towards that and they get more awareness of their internal experience, then they're going to still face the anxiety of, but I'm not attending to what is important. I have to be attending to other people's needs and what's going on in the world where things are going to go to hell in a handbasket. That's, that's what I have to do. I can't be paying attention inside. So you're still going to deal with the reluctance to start listening to them to oneself because it feels so compelling to keep oneself safe, to be listening and attending to the outside world. I would imagine this is going to be doubly, triply, quadruply difficult for somebody who, I mean, if, I, if I'm that type of person, it's likely that by the time I reach age 40 or 50 or 60, I've embedded myself in a circumstance where I'm in relationships that are complicitly reinforcing my need to tend to other people's needs, meaning I've got relationships, I'm surrounded by relationships where the people I'm in relationship with think it's exactly right that I'm tending to their needs prior to my needs. Mm -hmm. So what do you do with that? When you're in a, I mean, I guess that's why you have couples therapy or families therapy, because you have to work on the whole environmental unit of your relationship life. What, what are the chances of one person 
creating change for themselves when they're already embedded in an atmosphere where there's this kind of com these complicit uh, agreements going on between others. Uh, there's a few points and questions in there, Rick. Um, so absolutely, that's one of the things we do. Um, a friend of mine, um, Bob Firestone, talks, doesn't use quite the same words that I do, but uh, selection. We tend to select the environments that match our childhood. We then tend to project uh, onto the situation to make it match our childhood. So we imagine things in our lives now being more like how we how things were in our childhood than they really are. We'll imagine our partners as being more like our parents than they really are. And then we behave in ways to reenact the, uh, the childhood scenario. So as you were saying, uh, if we're really used to just attending to other people, serving other people's needs, then we'll end up uh, in, involved in relationships in which other people are quite willing to have us do that. <laughs> right. Um, so it, it's, uh, it seems mutually uh, <laughs> simpatico. Uh, however, uh, it, it's not that clean. Our, our ways of being, our, our, those patterns will have upsides for, our, for other people and also downsides. Uh, so the downsides, for example, if I'm really super solicitous and paying so much attention and needing other people to let me know I'm really serving them well, I might be annoying as hell to them. Mm -hmm. You know, If I'm acting like a doormat all the time, just tell me what you need. No, I'm happy to do it. They might find that really annoying. Mm -hmm. They'll tell me, you got to stop that. You got to change that. Oh, great. They're telling me to change. I want to change. Great. Let's change. Then the problem is, as soon as I start to make my changes, they're not going to like some, they're not going to like some of it, right? Because while there were aspects of my way of being that they didn't like, there were aspects that they really liked. They there was a big payoff for them that exactly they didn't even realize they were getting this big payoff until I start to withdraw it. Exactly, and then the message is change back. <laughs> Because I don't want you to do that thing, but I want you to keep doing the other things. Right. Even though all of it came from the same place within you, your willingness to neglect what's going on for you in the favor of attending to the uh, needs or feelings of other people. So you said, what are the chances of one person being able to make that make the change? Because it's not just changing themselves, it's changing the dynamics and the relationships around them. And bottom line is, it's a tall order, which is one reason that people don't tend to change much in their lives. You're up against your internal struggle, you're gonna, the feelings that are going to come up for you, and you're up against any resistance you might get from people around you. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's tough to do, and unless you're really clear about what, why you're doing what you're doing and the obstacles that you're going to come up against, if you that's a big part of what I emphasize is you got to recognize that if you're going to really change in your life, you're going to come up against anxiety, some, some form of distress. You can't avoid it. And it's not, that's just not, not just my perspective. Other uh, therapists as well will tell you the same thing. So you've got to be willing to deal with the anxiety in yourself and you're going to have to be learn to deal relatively gracefully 
with the blowback from other people. Because some people are not going to like when you change. Right. Even from their own sense of familiarity. But you're different. (laughs) Right. So can you just talk for a moment about how, and this is something that I've learned from you over the years, which was a a, a little kind of light bulb moment for me in my own personal work is that this anxiety spike, the, the fear distress spike is going to show up even with, and perhaps even more with positive change. Like when I change in a direction or move towards something that is good and right and feels great for me, that's going to be produce as much anxiety as me attending to parts of myself that, you know, maybe I want to change that I don't like so much, or I want to eliminate or reduce. So for sure, anxiety is going to come up uh, with any positive change you're going to make in your life and going after what you want. Absolutely. It's going to be there. Uh, I actually, once people have a the, the broader perspective of understanding the inevitability that these distressing feelings are going to come up when you start going after what you really want, going after it more, then I give them the message. So it's really valuable to actually anticipate those feelings. It's like, if I'm doing this, I know how I'm going to feel. I know I'm going to feel scared. I know I'm going to feel like, uh-oh, I'm getting too big for my britches here. I better get myself back in my box. Anticipate that those feelings are going to come up. And then when they do, use them as a sign you're on the right track. (laughs) Right. Instead of avoiding them, it's like, no, it's like, oh, I must be doing the right thing here. There's that feeling. So obviously what you're doing is you're turning turning it on its head. Instead of being a sign that you're doing something wrong, you're able to recognize it for what it is, a sign you're doing something right. I'm doing a lot of right things right now. <laughs> Congratulations, Rick. <laughs> in, the last, in the last few months, I must be doing a lot of good, right things. <laughs> and so much so that I even have a question sometimes about whether I need to back off from some of the stuff I'm trying and experimenting with and uh, breaking out of my box to do because of the distress it's causing physiologically, Mm -hmm. like the amount of sort of heart racing, um, clenching in my gut. I mean, literally, and it just, it's so inexplicable to me, especially since like I've been a public speaker and performer all my life. And that was something that produced a lot of anxiety in the early years for me. But over the years in doing it, I became more and more confident and accustomed to those circumstances and being, you know, taking risks and being visible in that circumstance. It's so fascinating to me now that when I do things online, Mm-hmm. And an, ex- an example is, and at this, I feel absurd even just sharing this, but I get more nervous posting something on Instagram than I do speaking to 
a corporate audience of a hundred people. And it's fascinating to me to see that I'm like all feeling alarmed and scared about that. I'm going to put something, I'm going to do something on Instagram that a lot of people are going to see that they're going to look at and go, Oh my God, this, what an idiot. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, this person has no idea what they're doing or, I can't believe they posted that or, but, but because it's an, it's a territory that's unfamiliar to me and I don't know the protocols and the, the norms, this fear comes up. So that's an, that's an example of where I get a a lot of fear and anxiety. Yep. Same, (laughs) same experience, different situation. So I sure get it when we, uh, as similar as it looks, once you get once you became comfortable with doing your uh, your corporate gigs in front of a, a large live audience, again anxiety's there. But if you stick with it, as with anything, your anxiety will diminish over time. But that doesn't mean it's not going to pop up again in a new area. It's going to have the same roots in childhood, the same apprehension that you had when you started public speaking was. Oh, how is this going to be received? Are they going to like me? Are they going to reject me? Are they going to think I'm an idiot? Or, you know, somehow you're going to feel embarrassed or humiliated. Right. So it's the same feeling now coming up in this new context. So I can, ex- I can expect that to be a recurring, repeating pattern when I try new things like forever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that some of that's going to come up. Yep. We don't get to avoid that. And uh, I don't have time to explain why, but we should have entire, a huge amount of patience and compassion for ourselves that, yes, that feeling is going to come up again in a new situation or maybe even recur in the same, same situation at times. But the, the, uh, if I take a step back, the bigger practice that I advocate is actually cultivating more and more comfort with those distressing feelings. So yes, you're going to have the sense of embarrassment or, uh, come up or the apprehension that, oh boy, am I going to do something that people are not going to like? They're going to think I'm an idiot or something like that. And what I encourage is developing more and more comfort with that feeling so that it's not something that's like, oh God, I've just got to bear this thing. I've got to endure this awful feeling again to get what I want. You can actually change your relationship with the feeling so that it's not perceived as something that's that's bad that you just got to sort of grit your teeth through but if um as you develop an awareness that there's no current uh reality um validity to the feeling that feeling in your world now so if we reflect on well okay i'm afraid something terrible is going to happen and you sort of again rationally ref, uh, reflect on the reality of the situation well what terrible, awful thing is really going to happen? You realize, well, the worst thing that could happen really isn't, isn't very terrible. And reflect on, well, what are the chances that this is really going to blow up in my face and people are going to, are, uh, I'm going to be ridiculed by people or I'm going to be embarrassed? It's like, based on all the things we've done in our lives, it's like, and how often, usually, how often have you expected that to happen and it hasn't happened? So if you get it as wise a perspective on it as you can it's like that's my fear but how realistic is it and you realize it's like well not very it's like the chances of something bad happening are pretty 
pretty slim, that's not going to, and the intention is not to have that stop the feeling. But when you have the awareness that there's no real danger here, there's no big risk, and things are probably going to go fine, then that allows you to then turn around and relate to the fear differently, recognizing that it's not about your life now. There is no big risk. You're not going to do something stupid that's going to risk your life or the welfare of your family or anything like that. And you're unlikely to do something that's going to be really uh, so bad that people are going to, uh, you're going to feel humiliated with people. Okay, so how do you get comfortable with those feelings? How do you become, what are the, what's the practice or what's a practice someone can do to become more tolerant or comfortable of, of those distressing feelings? My foundational recommendation is those feelings are going to come up. And if they come up when you're not expecting them, <laughs> they're going to be a lot, uh, a lot scarier, a lot more daunting for us when they're, when they're triggered uh, throughout our daily lives. Uh, and it's a whole lot easier when we actually are approaching them when we're fully prepared for and welcoming whatever feelings are there for us. So I recommend and work with my clients uh, on a meditative practice where it's akin to what's being called mindfulness now. Uh, but basically we get into a, a, a settled, calm place and we listen inside because the feelings that get more intense when we go after what we want they're always there in the background. It might be mild. So say you're, as you're about to <laughs> put your, uh, put something on Instagram, your level of distress is up at about a six out of 10. It's like, okay. But if you just sort of sit in there in your daily life, you might find that it's at a one or two out of 10. So it's not bugging you. It's, and you don't even notice it because it's so quietly there in the background. It's so familiar for you. Uh, but the feeling will be there. So if you just breathe and listen, it's like, is your level of distress down at zero? It's like, not likely. <laughs> You'll probably be feeling some mild level of distress, even when you're feeling good. So what I encourage people to do is to listen to, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good, but it's like, there's this mild little distress. Okay, listen to it, welcome it, get used to it. So when you're practicing doing that, when your distress is at low levels and you're getting really comfortable with it, uh, then when it comes up, you've got much more facility, more skill at being able to navigate it. When the distress is low, so if I go and look for it and I can, there's not much going on and mm -hmm. yeah, okay, there's a little bit of distress, getting comfortable with it is a process of like actually trying to stay with the feeling and then is that it i'm just being present with it or am i simultaneously kind of saying hey um you know this is okay i appreciate the question and it's 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 uh tricky to give you a comprehensive answer briefly but uh first off whatever feelings there is fine so my encouragement is you feel what you feel. And as you're just listening inside, whatever's there, you don't try to push it away. You don't tell yourself you shouldn't be feeling it. You just 
breathe and let that feeling be there. You're not, don't get into a, don't go to war with yourself. Don't get into a fight with yourself. Just like, oh, and it may be, I'm feeling tickled. I'm going out to dinner with my girlfriend tonight and I'm just delighted. It's like, fine, let yourself feel the delight. It's not always going to be tough feelings, but as you you will notice in the background, there will be some feelings of distress, some apprehension. And the attitude towards those is what I would call inviting or welcoming. So it's not merely a tolerance of them. Again, if you're recognizing that these feelings are echoes from how you felt when you were young, it's like it's, oh, at the same way you would ideally do with a child, you're listening to and welcoming the feeling. And just that attitude towards it will be uh, tremendously valuable. The next step I encourage is uh, the same way you, you ideally would with a child, is offering yourself a wise perspective on the feeling. So it may be, it's like, oh, I'm really feeling scared. You know, I, I'm off, I've got this thing lined up tonight, and in the back of my mind, I'm really feeling scared. Huh. And then, well, what's true? Well, it's, I'm scared, and that's okay. And, well, realistically, what could happen tonight that would be so disastrous? So I could remind myself of like, yeah, I'm scared, but I'm utterly safe. There's no danger. I'm doing something that's familiar to me. I'm offering people something that I think will be helpful for them. So obviously the, the content varies depending on the particular feeling and the circumstances you're in having the feeling. But it's always a process. And again, this is foundational for me of listening to the feeling acknowledging it in words. And we know from lots of research, words for the feeling really help. So if I'm scared and I say, I'm scared, you know, or if I'm feeling guilty, it's like, oh, I'm feeling guilty. The words do help. Uh, and again, you're not pushing the feeling away, but you're meeting the feeling with what you know to be true. Again, not to stop the feeling, but just to have a container for the feeling. Mm -hmm. One thing to feel scared when you know you're safe and that's very different than feeling scared when you actually believe that you're in danger. Mm -hmm. So, so what we're after is the first one recognizing you can have any feelings you want as long as you know that you're okay. Mm -hmm. I often use the example of people are quite happy to have these very distressing feelings as long as they know they're okay. Um, we go on roller coasters <laughs> where we feel terrified because we're falling off a cliff repeatedly right. and we do it over and over <laughs> so we can feel scared. Or we watch uh, movies or TV shows where upsetting feelings are going to be stirred up in us. Again, it can be fear, pain. We like to watch shows where <laughs> uh, we're moved, we cry. So th those are th we're, we quite welcome those feelings because we're we know we're just watching a TV show or a movie. We're not in any danger. There's no real problem. So we let ourselves feel it. We actually even look forward to it, seek it out. So the problem isn't the feeling. The problem is believing that the feeling is about some big problem in your life now. Mm -hmm. And that knowing that it's not 
gives you the freedom to just feel what's there because you know there's no problem. Mm-hmm. So how does that tie back to trauma? Is trauma trauma because the child didn't know that they were going to be okay? Or is that, is that like the defi- one of the defining ingredients of trauma is not knowing if you're going to live and survive? Yeah, the, the nature of trauma is first that somehow it feels threatening to your existence. Uh, so again, as adults, we think about in life and death situations uh, where you don't know if you're going to come out of it alive, a uh, car crash, a rape, being in war, obvious situations like that that are obviously life and death. But as an infant or a toddler, uh, what's going on relationing with parents is inherently, uh, that's what our life depends on. If, if mom, and ba- mom and dad decide to abandon us, <laughs> we're dead. So at a very primitive level, the, the ne- uh, necessity for us to maintain that sense of connection with parents uh, means that we are easily tr- uh, overwhelmed and traumatized if those relationships are somehow threatened. Mm-hmm. So something that can seem pretty innocuous. So yes, it does come down to the infant or toddler having the experience of somehow their existence is being threatened. That can be something even like if you've got a parent who's enraged at you, it's like they're your entire world. Your entire existence depends on them. If they're yelling at you like they're going to kill you, it's like that's life-threatening. So that can be traumatizing. So that's in terms of the situations or even having parents yelling at each other. If parents are fighting, we know that's traumatizing for kids. Lots of evidence of that. Um, but the the crucial thing that happens with trauma is that we are overwhelmed. It, be, it feels, it seems intolerable. We cannot tolerate what's going on. It's just uh, tearing us apart. So it's in that experience of overwhelming and intolerable that we start, that we develop ways of, uh, again, dissociation, splitting off, somehow cutting off from our internal experience because it's too much to bear. So that's what gets set in, set in motion early in life. We're now actually sh- shutting parts of ourselves out, splitting off from parts of our experience. And, um, and it's when that, that, those aspects, those feelings that we've cut off from start to reemerge. That's what I call intrusive feelings. That's what comes up when we're triggered. Those feelings that aren't really about our lives now. Okay. That's a, that's a nice map. I think very useful, just kind of laying out the architecture of uh, avoidance. And now you just mentioned intrusive feelings, which I have also found a very useful term, like something about, you know, you mentioned that to me years ago and the something about the phrase intrusive feelings really captures the experience of me trying to go about my day and having out of the left field these feelings show up that are like almost like a little kid mm-hmm. by my side yanking on my pant leg repeatedly <laughs> really hard you know I'm trying to have a conversation with a 
you know, on a Zoom call selling myself as a, as a speaker and I've got this intrusive feeling down there on the floor yanking on me going, hey, 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 I'm scared. This, you know, and uh, so that phrase intrusive feeling feels very accurate to my experience of it. It's it's very, it intrudes upon how I want to just conduct myself as an adult. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad it works for you, Rick. And uh, I'm glad the, that you experience it as a map as well, because that's, that's what I think is so valuable. If we have a, a bigger perspective and understanding about what goes on for us, then we have a sense of, of what we need to do. Otherwise, we can just be left floundering. So if we actually believe that the feelings that are coming up for us are about our lives now, we're just going to carry on as if they are basically in an illusion. My expression is that we're, uh, we're going to think that we're in some fight in our lives now, but really we're just wrestling with ghosts from the past. It's not about our lives now. Right. The other thing I wanted to just ask you about in terms of now having kind of laid out this map, this overview, you spoke about how valuable it is to, on your own terms, move toward those areas of distress or those areas that, the in, internal distressing feelings, which are always there. Mm-hmm. How, what role do you see, like for example, the the games for confidence that I do, which I've you know created for myself initially, for this purpose of going, all right, I know the distress is always there. What if I give myself a task or an activity that I know is going to give me an opportunity to be with that distress, but it's gonna mm-hmm. it's gonna allow me to do that on my own terms. I get to say, okay, I am consciously right now, I'm gonna do this little exercise and I know it's gonna create some distress, but that practice of taking action and engaging with my life the way I want to, even as that distress is present, I think is gonna be valuable for me. How do you see that kind of practice factoring into the the therapeutic side of of what you're addressing? I think the practice of approaching the feelings on your own terms is crucial. Uh, and again, you don't even have to do anything to start because you're going to feel some, those feelings will be there in the background. And uh, I make the <clears throat> the analogy to anything that you want to get good at in your life. Uh, if you want to uh, get good at a sport, you don't jump into the middle of a game. You practice on, in low stress situations. So us Canadians wanting to uh, learn how to play hockey, well, first you got to get the skates on and just learn to stand up on the ice before you, long before you're in a game situation. You've got to be able to learn to uh, move along the ice on your skates. <laughs> so there's all these things that you want to practice or you think about a musical instrument, same deal. You're not going to um, plunk yourself in the middle of a symphony. You're going to start practicing when there's no stress, when you can just play around with the instrument. So it's the same in many spheres in our lives where we want to practice when it's not game time when there's no particular stress. So doing it on our own terms is crucial. If you wait until you are triggered 
if you wait in, you, until you're into that, um, uh, you know, sales situation and all of the overwhelming si- feelings come up for you, it's like, that's not the time to begin practicing. Like you're, <laughs> you're already in too deep. You want to practice uh, long before that in, in circumstances in which you have control. You can increase and decrease the level of distress at will, you know, with where you're focusing your attention. I think the second part of your question is it's absolutely valuable to just listen to your feelings, uh, to whatever's there, the distressing feelings, with no particular provocation. You're not doing anything to intensify them. Mm -hmm. But the next step is, yeah, you've got to be doing stuff that actually activates the distressing feelings. You don't want to do that until you've got some facility with the feelings to begin with. Right. But after you've got the ability to be with the feelings at low levels of intensity, then what we need to do is now do things that actually evoke more of the feeling. Uh-huh. This is very basic to, to psychotherapy, exposure work. doesn't matter if we're dealing with a phobia or pretty much anything. We want to start with you know, very low challenges. It's not stuff that's going to be overwhelming for you, but something that's a little bit challenging. It's just going to nudge up your level of distress a little bit. Okay, and then you work with that level of distress. And as you do, what you'll find is, oh, as you found with your speaking gigs, this becomes easily manageable. And then you bump it up a little bit again. So in your games for confidence, you're uh, encouraging people to challenge themselves. And that's an, an absolutely necessary part of the part of the deal. So again, first developing comfort with your feelings and then increasingly challenging yourself, knowing that you're fine, knowing that you're going to feel distressed, and then welcoming whatever comes and then the feeling will settle down. It won't feel so, it won't feel bad. You'll, you'll have mastered it. Right. Yeah, I'm realizing as I'm just now conversing with you about this, the way the the way I've constructed the games and what became clear to me is sort of like the speaking and the Instagram thing. If I want to begin to dissolve or lessen the intensity of the intrusive feelings, I actually have to move toward a lot of different situations which individually produce distress for me because it's not like if I if I find just one situation in which that that creates or triggers my distress and I practice in that situation, it doesn't eliminate the distress trigger in a whole bunch of other situations where I've somehow developed an avoidance of mm-hmm. that circumstance. So Absolutely. the games have been an interesting way, just kind of intuitively, I, I realized, oh, I'm going to have to like move toward a lot of little different pockets where I have somehow developed a story that is telling me I might not be safe here. And I have to go there knowing it's going to be this little bit of feeling that I'm not safe. And I have to be participate in that situation with the intrusive feelings to learn to re- I guess, retrain myself to understand, oh, actually, it's okay. You mm-hmm. you are okay in this situation. Yep. You got it. And that principle goes back to Freud, who called it working through. 
same experience, different situations. And now uh, we're more inclined to call it generalization, getting generalization of the learning. So you have to apply the same learning in different situations to get the generalization. So, yep, you're onto it, Rick. Cool. Okay. Well, I, I had to somehow in the course of our conversation work into some degree of affirmation of who I am and what I'm doing essentially. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad I was able to accomplish that. <laughs> You're right up there with Freud and Skinner. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Cool. I think this has been great and plenty for, for me and hopefully others to chew on and digest some really good orientation. And that that's part of why I wanted to speak with you because you've done this, You've, you've worked so thoroughly through understanding and uh, creating a, a framework for understanding how this works with human beings. And I know that your upcoming book is going to have this laid out very clearly. So I wanted to talk to you because I know you have a good handle on this and that comes through when you speak about it. So thanks for sharing it. You're real welcome, Rick. May it uh, serve you and your listeners well. All right. Well, we'll sign off here. This has been episode 57 of the Follow Through Formula Podcast. My guest has been Dr. Jeff Carr. Hey, Jeff, where can we send people if they want to see more about what you do, your work, uh, if they want to get on your five-year waiting list, um, or or be notified when your book comes out, where would you send them? Sure. Uh, being a client is certainly not in the realm of possibilities. I'm beyond full. But if you want uh, free material, uh, feelgoodforfree.com. And you can also get to the same place at drjeffreycarr.com. Feelgoodforfree.com, drjeffreycarr.com. Great. Okay. So now we know where to find you. Thanks again yes. for the conversation. Signing off on episode 57, I'm Rick Lewis, and I'll be back tomorrow. Hey, thanks for being here and being a die-hard listener down to the last decibel. My vision for these conversations is that you get informed and inspired to take consistent action on the real you. If these podcasts help you to do that, I'm thrilled. And if you'd like to take that work to the next level, I invite you to join me inside the Life Leap community, where I'm creating a culture and a support network for those who want to pursue what matters most in their lives. To learn more, just go to gamesforconfidence.com and click on the Life Leap menu item. I'd love to see you on the inside, and otherwise, I'm sure we'll meet again in another episode.